Welcome to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Wicked is how Honolulu Mayor Rick Blangiardi described the issues that are vexing his administration. Some are chronic and systemic. One of those he highlighted in the State of the City address yesterday was the need to overhaul the Department of Planning and Permitting, which has a tremendous impact on our economy. From a backlog of permits, which is 300 days or more, intertwined with our housing crisis, to corruption and outdated technology, it is all holding us back. Blangiardi suggested throwing out DPP's current structure and starting all over again. Take a listen. The reality is, is that DPP, the building permit process, is just one of many complex functions of a very large department, covering a wide range of core services, including the regulation of short-term vacation rentals, enforcement actions, affordable housing, transit-oriented development, zoning, land use, plan and project reviews, inspections, historic preservation, and many other issues affecting communities across the city and county. So if efficient permitting is a priority of our people and businesses, then we must consider whether the Department of Planning and Permitting should continue as one department. This is a tough call, but we must continue to explore innovative ideas and be open to the possibility of further systemic change. And for that reason, I am calling on Don and Jiro, the former team who have studied the most efficient structure of the Department of Planning and Permitting. We need to do a survey of the best practices in municipalities of our size, looking at departments that are combined as we are currently structured, as well as departments that are completely separate planning and permitting. And I'm asking them to present their findings to me no later than the end of this year. So if we need to rechart our course and look at additional systemic change, I want to do that sooner rather than later. So Don and Gerald, thank you for taking on this additional task, as if you don't have enough to do already. You know, we're all genuinely excited about the future of DPP. I want to make that really clear. And what a fully functional DPP will mean for the city and county of Honolulu and our island economy. That was Honolulu Mayor Rick Blangiardi in his State of the City address. And this morning, we spoke with DPP Director Don Apana about the staffing challenges and the backlog. It's roughly about 6,000 permits that we have in process currently. And then the wait time that we reported at the end of 2022, it was about 300 or 30 days for average for all permits, commercial, residential but we've done some things like use the bot in the pre-screen phase to cut down that wait time, but that backlog has shifted a little forward. So each section we're trying to work on and work through in order to streamline and, and get rid of the backlog. So explain to our listeners the concept of this bot and what it's doing exactly. So the bot is reviewing the pre-screen, which is basically checking the formatting of the plans, making sure that it's the right size, that there's the stamp space, uh, scale, etc. So the bot runs through, we turn it on at night, there's actually two, and it'll scan plans. And if there are errors in the plans, an email will be sent to the applicant uh, notifying that there's this error and then they can resubmit once the error is corrected. So the bot checks for four of our 10 pre-screen checklist items. And then when it goes, when, once it goes to the bot and it passes those four, it moves on to a manual pre-screen where our clerks check on the remaining six pre-screen listed items. And is this mainly for the simpler uh, permits, you know, residential? Actually, this is for all permits, commercial, residential. It's all the same pre-review of the plans prior to code review. And how are you prioritizing the backlog? Is it uh, by when the the resident or the company submitted the plans? Basically, but then we have certain areas that we are trying to concentrate on. We've learned recently that solar applications make up more than 60% of all of our permits. And that's uh, pretty high compared to the second category is only 14%, 14%, which is alteration. So knowing that this is just a huge chunk of our permitting, we're trying to work on it. We actually have at our Coppola office in the mornings, clerks work just exclusively on solar permits. And we're looking at other ways to make sure that those go through smoothly because they basically affect all other permits 
in the process. Now, if I recall the conversation around the delay in solar, I think last year or so, mm -hmm. had to do with the applications that came from like, you know, townhomes, because mm -hmm. they were a little bit more complicated and might need an engineer's eyes on them. Yeah, so I think because there there's different hookups and, it, it, and one solar system for one unit can affect the whole system or the whole townhouse complex that we need to review that. But um, we have a lot of just single family residential solar and we have been able to um, look specifically at that and try to get those through further, make sure that they go through our online permitting. So I think there has been some some gains or some progress as far as the residential, and we're still working on some fixes for the commercial solar. And when we had uh, Mayor Blangiardi uh, on the show uh, recently, he talked about the kinds of things that you folks were considering, which included self-certification. So it's basically asking engineers, architects to step up, look at the plans themselves, uh, but that involves talking to their insurance carriers, right? Right. And it's more just like it's an option that we want to provide, it's not required or anything, but... If they believe that they want to stamp their plans and certify that their plans are good enough to pass review without actually coming through our process, then we want to provide that option. But, but we do need to at least first get the bill passed, Bill 6, and then do administrative rules, which will help to set up the program and make sure there's good guardrails in there. We don't want people coming in and just rubber stamping. We want to make sure that these are good quality plans, that people are certified by the department and will do the right thing. And I think in the end, as offered as an option, it may help with taking away a little part of that backlog. So it sounds though that that's gonna take a while if you've got to draft rules. Yeah, I think that, I mean, the bill process will take a couple more months and then at least, and then the administrative rules process, in my experience, at least three months to get through that. But if we really work hard on it, I think we can get it done within a year. We, we have a task force that we're working with outside industry groups, and we've already presented the bill and the idea to them, including AIA and BIA and GCA. And so we're getting good feedback, and they're interested in helping us develop those rules. So I think if we all work together, we can get there pretty quickly. And those groups, the Contractors Association, the Building Industry Association, and the Architects, I mean, yeah, those are key key groups. And, and I know that uh, the AIA, at least, those folks have already reached out to their carriers to discuss, you know, what are the parameters, right? Because maybe some right. carriers may decide it's not worth the risk, depending on how big the project is. That's right. I think we need to de determine what type of project would be allowed for self-certification. Other jurisdictions, they do uh, do it by valuation of projects, but we're probably going to look at specific types of projects and, and maybe uh, choose certain types that are lower risk as far as insurance is concerned. And then if, it, if the program works well enough or is um, we can always expand to other projects in the future. Now, when I did talk with the folks over at the Department of Hawaiian Homelands, they were talking about self-certification, right? Because, I mean, they're in line to receive, you know, millions of dollars in order to create new housing for Native Hawaiians. And they said they did have some type of self-certification in place, but they said they do even though they didn't need to run it by DPP, that they would send it over to you folks as well. Right. I think so. Even now, a lot of the state agencies that have development arms, they they can go ahead. They, they have um, that authority to move ahead without our approval. But a lot of times they need our inspectors who can go out and based on approved plans, issue certificates of occupancy. Like that's what they want to get in order for I guess, insurance or other reasons, uh, even mortgages. So the whole uh, issue about inspections and COs, certificates of occupancies, is kind of the missing piece. And it's probably a matter of us working that part out and if we have the capacity to, to do those inspections. You know, the mayor talked about the wicked problems and, mm -hmm. you know, you've got your hands full with this backlog of permits and you've also got a situation with the illegal vacation rentals. Uh, he had mentioned that you folks may have had some recent numbers about enforcement and complaints. And I know th things changed during COVID, but what's the snapshot on the vacation rental side? 
So the vacation rental, since we set up the, the new team that's solely focused on short-term rental enforcement, which was back in October when the bill became effective, I don't have exact numbers right now, but I know that the numbers of notices of violations and notices of orders did multiply quite dramatically since that team went into effect. And that team is actually, we had to pull from other inspection groups to get that team running. But recently in the last month, we've hired investigators, uh, which is a little bit different than inspectors, uh, who we think might have some other techniques and experience in being able to go after some of these more chronic, illegal, short-term rental operators. And at one time, you know, uh, f- uh, folks were looking at, you know, the permits for bed and breakfast where you would have someone on site to help regulate that. I don't know where we at with that. So it's similar. I mean, I think we kind of treat them the same, that we, we do allow bed and breakfasts and transient vacation rentals in the certain zoned areas. And so we're really kind of focusing on the residential areas where those are not allowed, but we have enforcement to uh, deal with both. Well, we realize that there is a tremendous pressure on you and on your staff, you know, and uh, you're dealing with a number of vacancies. You know, you folks have just, you know, had a couple of back guys with the bribery scandal. Uh, How's the morale in the department? It's kind of a big department. We have like about, I think, currently 285 filled positions. It's hard, I think, because we have maybe a 25% vacancy rate, people are having to do a lot more than, you know, a normal uh, employee would have to do for us to get the job done. And then, yeah, the, the news that we hear about the department is not always great news, but I try to tell my staff that everything that we're trying to do now is to help them so that they, they aren't so overburdened and that we can get the job done and we can do it right. You know, I've talked about task force, the task force outside of our, uh, department, but we have internal task forces and staff who have really stepped up and are interested and invested in helping to improve the conditions at the department. And then I think there's those that they don't really like change or a lot of the change that's happening, but I think they're overall, I, I feel that we, we are headed in the right direction and, and it's exciting when we can do it together. So I, I feel like we're on a positive um, upward well, climb, but also upward positive way, I guess. Yeah, a good direction at this mm-hmm. point. Uh, and, you know, I know the mayor talked about splitting you guys up again. And when I was a city hall reporter, it used to be all, you know, separate. Building department was one, planning was the other. But you've got to try and help push that along as well, right? That's one of the things on your plate. Yeah, and I think it's it's in line with everything else that we're trying to do. Like, we're, we're looking at ev- how everything has been done or is, is being done and whether it makes sense whether it's necessary. I think over the last couple of decades, there's been a lot of layers that have been put on and band-aids without really looking at the overall the overall structure. So I think that's one of the things that could be helpful, that we strip away what is not necessarily required or we could separate it out. I think accountability over just a building department versus accountability over a planning department, that makes sense to mm-hmm. the other counties. They have separate departments. So I, we will look at it as mayor has asked. And I think it's all part of this whole ev- evolution of, of DPP. That was Don Apana, director of the Department of Planning and Permitting, talking to us this morning more in detail about the problems and the solutions Mayor Rick Langiardi outlined in his State of the City address yesterday. Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Richardson School of Law. Its Master of Laws provides specializations in environmental, international, and other fields for attorneys from the U.S. and around the world. Law.hawaii.edu. 
when you're out and about, stay connected on the HPR mobile app. Whether you're on a run, walking the dog, or just doing errands, take Hawaii Public Radio with you. Stream the latest news and talk from HPR One, or experience the soothing calm of classical music on HPR Two. Plus, you can see playlists, listen to interviews, and see the program schedule too. Available 24-7 right from your smartphone. Available on the App Store or on Google Play. On the next Fresh Air, working as a doctor in the largest safety net hospital in Houston, one of America's most diverse cities in the state that has the nation's largest uninsured population. Safety net hospitals treat the uninsured who aren't admitted to other hospitals. We'll talk with Dr. Ricardo Nuila, author of the new book, The People's Hospital. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point... Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. EPA is proposing limits on forever chemicals in our drinking water, and this week it just released a list of six of them. That's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat editor Chad Blair is on the line. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Yeah, so for anybody who's been uh, tracking this PFAS, the forever chemicals, you know, this issue, I mean, we've already detected some of these levels in our water. Right, and appropriately, this story is from Christina Jedra, who has written a lot of things for us about Red Hill, and I think that's where uh, these uh, these chemicals, these forever chemicals, as they're known as, because they don't break down in the environment, but PFAS, PFAS, there's various pronunciations, but it's spelled P-F-A-S, that's an acronym. I'm not going to attempt to uh, detail exactly how to pronounce, it's on radio, right? I don't yes. want to screw that up. But in Christina's story, she does, in fact, uh, explain the chemicals, but basically, there's an, they're toxic, they're, and they have been discovered here in the islands. We first became aware of them, I think, broadly because of the Red Hill situation, because they were detected in the the firefighting foam, and and there actually was a bill passed at the legislature. I don't think it goes into effect until 2025, but regards, uh, you know, getting rid of those chemicals in those that those devices, those formulas. But right now. The story that Christina is particularly focused on, you mentioned the EPA, that was just announced yesterday. Her story mentions that, but also focuses on how the Hawaii Army National Guard has actually identified areas where these toxic chemicals are located in in, in nearby groundwater, specifically in Waiava. She opens with a taro farmer, fish, uh, fish pond owner, expressing great concern that the testing has discovered these chemicals in their private wells. And, and this is, you know, you just start thinking, when is this story about clean water going to end here in the islands? It's just one tragedy after another. Yes, and on the federal level, I know that they have some money uh, in the budget to deal with PFAS in drinking water. And the Department of uh, Health here has started a study to try and make sure we're testing for PFAS in our landfills, in our uh, wastewater Right, and in the case of Wyalva, uh, rather, uh, the military is saying that if they do detect levels of PFAS that are above the federal safety standards, they're going to plan to distribute bottled water to the property owners. But those those same taro farmers I mentioned and the people that own the fish ponds are saying, look, that's not going to work. Uh, we rely on these, these wells, these private wells, for our livelihood. We drink from the water. The community drinks from the water. I think a main point... Uh, of Christina's story is that there is no system-wide solution to dealing with PFAS uh, in the islands, uh, and it's an issue that has already come up on the mainland that has already led to a lot of lawsuits. As you can imagine, uh, there are people that want to hold the polluters financially responsible for the for what they've done. Yeah, and and the the dilemma, of course, though, is that this PFAS chemical these these chemicals are in 
a lot of everyday things, right? Waterproofing and uh, Teflon. Uh, but if you've got the big I was, polluters, I was surprised. Yeah, I was surprised just how widespread. Christina actually does some history. It goes back to the 1940s, and you are absolutely right. There, there are in a lot of things that we use in common. Common usage in our households, uh, everywhere that we can imagine. I think about how much we rely on plastics. There has been efforts uh, to transition away from these chemicals into less harmful substances, but that's taking a while. How are they harmful, by the way? Christina actually goes into some detail, uh, and the health problems that are listed include uh, cancer, uh, fertility problems, disruption of the immune system. If I can just plug... She actually has some graphics showing the human bodies for both the male and the female, identifying other areas that can be impacted by these chemicals. Yeah, good, good graphics, and and uh, you you've got charts, and uh, you know we we've got the issue of uh, the major polluters, right? The industries, the military, of uh, uh, fire uh, firefighting departments, uh, and and then there's also you know what do you do when it gets in the food chain? Right. So I mean, one recommendation right now is that the Department of Health has said, look, you ought to put a, a, a water filter di- device in your own home. But that's probably not going to be enough. Uh, the story does identify five communities um, in the islands where we have seen these PFAS chemicals uh, arising. Four of them have been detected just in the last few months. That is in the story. I don't want to uh, give away all of them right now or alarm people who are listening. Uh, another important point, though, is that this is still very new. The way Christina describes it is Hawaii is really, really in the discovery phase here. We're going to have to figure out how to deal with this going forward. Uh, Mike Gabbard, the senator involved with the Ag Committee at the legislature, is focused on this. Nicole Lowen, she heads an environmental committee in the House. They are all trying to focus on legislation. Might include legislation focused on cosmetics and personal care items, other things that are being used that contain, in some cases, toxic chemicals. Yeah, it's a little creepy, you know. But then you, you have to think of our history, little, right? Yeah. With, with the plantations and and pesticides, and you know, so yeah, uh, lots of uh, places uh, to to look for this stuff. Yeah, tough story from Christina. A must read for everyone. All right. Well, thank you so much, Chad. Sure. We've been talking to Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair for today's Reality Check. To read Christina Jedwa's story, visit civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, providing a variety of art experiences for the community. Learn more about art classes, workshops, and drop-in art making for adults and keiki at honolulumuseum.org. Aloha, I'm Bert Lum. If you're interested in science, technology, and Hawaii's innovation economy, Tune into Bite Marks Cafe on Hawaii Public Radio HPR1 today at 6.30 p.m. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to an equitable and thriving Hawaii, supporting initiatives such as affordable housing, fresh water, and the healthy development of young children. HawaiiCommunityFoundation.org are keeping a watchful eye on a disease that's devastated colonies of coral in the Atlantic. Could it move into the Pacific in ballast water found in ships? Well, HPR reporter Savannah Harriman-Pote joins us in studio this morning with the latest. Good morning. Yes, good morning, and sorry to keep the bummer times going after that last <laughs> segment about PFAS, but yes, Hawaii is bracing itself for the possible introduction of a 
deadly coral disease. And we've talked about invasive species a lot in Hawaii on the show and the impact that they have to our ecosystem, but we haven't covered aquatic species in such great length. And I was surprised to learn that there are over, over 450 introduced aquatic species that are impacting our reefs the most harmful of which are often algaes, which can suffocate coral reefs. But perhaps all of them pale in comparison to the risk posed by stony coral tissue loss disease. I called up the Hawaii Division of Aquatic Resources to find out more about this disease, and I spoke to Elizabeth Monahan. She's their aquatic biologist. And she did very little to quell my fears about this disease. Here's what she had to say. This coral disease is called the most devastating coral disease that we have ever seen in history. It affects over 20 species of corals, which is very concerning because a lot of times coral diseases will only affect a small subsection of corals, but this is affecting most coral species it comes into contact with. It causes very rapid tissue loss of the corals themselves. Uh, A lot of people are familiar with coral bleaching, which is when, you know, a coral gets stressed and its microorganisms leave the tissue of the coral and a coral can actually recover from bleaching because, you know, if if the stressor is removed, the microorganisms will come back to the coral um, and it will recover. But coral tissue loss disease is what we're seeing is the actual death of the coral itself. So the tissue of the coral is dying. Yeah, so thanks for being Debbie Downer today. I'm I'm sorry, and unfortunately I have to keep the bad times rolling because one of the real risks to Hawaii squirrels is the fact that the cause of this disease is unknown. But we do see in the Florida and Caribbean corals that it's impacting that it has up to a 90% mortality rate and it can kill an entire coral head within a month. It also spreads really, really quickly. We first noticed this disease about 10 years ago in Florida, and since then it has impacted the entire state's reef system, and then of course has spread to several other countries and territories throughout the Caribbean. So it's very scary, um, but hopefully it's also pretty far away. But the risk is a lot closer than you might, might think, and that's because the stony coral tissue loss disease has at least two known vectors that impact us here in Hawaii. One is biofouling, so I'm going to do a little bit of terminology. Biofouling is the collection of organisms that grow on the hull of a boat. So it can be anything from small larvae to algae, even oysters. And the other is ballast water. And ballast water is the water that a vessel takes up and releases when it's changing its weight. So when you consider the cargo ships that come to Hawaii and they're unloading, they take up weight to ensure that their ship is balanced. But the water that they're discharging may have come from a different port or a different ocean. And hundreds of vessels arrive in Hawaii at our ports in a given year. And Monaghan says a lot of those vessels are coming from areas that have been impacted by this coral tissue loss disease. There's huge potential for this pathogen to be introduced into the Pacific through the shipping industry and uh, particularly Hawaii. A lot of places are looking at Hawaii as maybe the first place that this um, disease will show up in the Pacific. So every time a vessel comes here that was in contact with this pathogen, we have a chance for it to be introduced to our reefs and potentially devastate our reefs. And you were talking about cargo ships, but it could be cruise ships. I mean, there are a lot of vessels that come through here. Absolutely. And it is important to note that the Hawaii Division of Aquatic Resources currently monitors all commercial vessels that are coming into the islands. However, they don't monitor residential vessels or military vessels. Military vessels are coming in through into federal waters, so they're not under the state's jurisdiction. So those are two other Um, entry points that we're not on top of. But even just staying on top of those commercial vessels, Monaghan says it's really hard. Because when you look at the team of the Hawaii Division of Aquatic Resources that is doing this work, the team is just Monaghan. She is the only full-time person assigned to this division. She applies for a grant to bring another person on board, but they also try to get an intern to kind of help with all of the data collection that goes into monitoring all of our port systems and then all of the vessels that come into the ports to make sure that we flag 
ships that are coming from areas that have been contaminated, as well as have someone who can go out and inspect the ship, monitor ballast water, or monitor the hull and try to get all of these ships in compliance. And we wonder why we have an invasive species problem. <laughs> Absolutely. This is, this is one of the largest and most concerning areas in which we're introducing species. And again, as with any invasive species initiative, our interconnection with the world impacts our ability to be effective. So if other ports are not doing effective biofouling procedures or ballast water procedures, that impacts us. New Zealand has a wonderful program. They actually will turn ships away if they do not meet their biofouling requirements. But these programs take a lot of resources. And so many countries, including the countries in which we receive shipments from often, do not necessarily have those same standards. Yeah, and I, I think when you mentioned the military, I was uh, flashing on the coconut rhinoceros beetle because I think it got introduced somehow you know, um, with their uh, transshipments. And so, yeah, you, you kind of worry. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot that could come in and affect our species. Absolutely. I did reach out to the military to learn more about their protocols, and I am waiting to hear back from them. All right. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Savannah. Thank you, Catherine. We've been talking to Savannah Harriman-Pote about the risk of something called stony coral tissue loss disease in our waters. Support for The Conversation comes from Skog Rasmussen, LLC, designing solutions for community engagement, project strategy, government relations, and grants services. Learn more at skograsmussen.com. Nicole Chase went to the police to report a sex crime. So my whole life has been flipped upside down. Then a detective starts to question her as if she's the suspect. Not in a million years would I have thought I was going to get a phone call telling me that I had a warrant out for my arrest. Switching the case on the next reveal. Support Beginning for HPR comes from Green Building Hawaii, providing energy and sustainability consulting services throughout the islands, specializing in residential and commercial building projects. Learn more about services at greenbuildinghawaii.com. is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. And now it's time to go to this week's Manu Minute to learn more about a seabird that seizes squid and fish from the surface of the water and scavenges from fishing boats. University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart tells us more about the Laysan albatross, or the moli. Laysan albatross, or moli, are beautiful seabirds with wingspans greater than six feet that help them soar for days over the ocean without landing. They're incredibly graceful in flight, but a bit clumsy on land, which is why they were long ago called goonie birds. They have mostly bright white heads and bodies and charcoal black wings with pinkish bills and feet. They find their first mate around the age of seven and remain with them for life unless one of the pair dies. They disappeared long ago from the main Hawaiian Islands because they nest on the ground in large colonies and are extremely vulnerable to all sorts of predators, including rats, dogs, and humans. Recently, though, there have been successful efforts to reintroduce them to Kauai and Oahu. Molis still breed in large numbers across the northwestern Hawaiian Islands, with nearly a million birds counted on Midway Island alone. This includes a female named Wisdom, the oldest wild bird known in the world. Laysan albatross feed mostly on fish eggs and squid that migrate near the surface of the ocean at night. This feeding behavior makes them susceptible to plastic marine debris, which they mistake for food and feed to their chicks, which may cause them to die. 
Moli are associated with the god Lono, and their return to land every year in the fall to nest signals the beginning of the Makahiki season. This is also the best time to hear the various whining and groaning types of calls, as well as the bill clapping, which is part of their impressive courtship displays. Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo. Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, devoted to protecting endangered birds and plants on Hawaii Island. More about helping at friendsofhakalauforest.org. Support local news coverage on HPR. Navy officials have announced they will open a clinic to address health issues possibly associated with jet fuel exposure. What we want to happen is for people to come in, find out what's happening to them, and work them up thoroughly so that there is a connection we can pursue it. Meanwhile, we'll be working very closely with the Department of Health and EPA to get the defueling plan approved. It's not yet approved. It's with the Department of Health and they're reviewing it. Once that's approved, we're gonna do iterative planning in partnership with the Department of Health and the EPA to find ways to move the timeline left. First, there's a technical, engineering, methodical and deliberate removal of the fuel. And the other is active listening, compassionate and empathetic conversations with our military families and the community. Donate today at hawaiipublicradio.org. Japanese-American soldiers who fought in the 442nd Regimental Combat Team during World War II are the subject of a new multimedia experience titled Defining Courage. Part film, part narration, and part live concert, the production is the work of ABC7 Los Angeles news anchor and filmmaker David Ono. Ono's mother was from Japan, but he grew up in Texas with very little connection to his Asian heritage. It wasn't until he moved to California in the 1990s that he began learning more about his Japanese ancestry and about the exploits of the 442nd. Defining Courage will be uh, performing in front of a sold-out audience this Saturday at the Hawaii Theater. It's the first time it will play to an audience outside of Los Angeles. The conversations Russell Subiano caught up with Ono in our studio where he explains what makes his production so unique. So it is this immersive way of telling a story. And in Los Angeles, we had literally a giant screen in the middle of the stage, and we had two side screens. We have me live on stage narrating. We have a choir and we have an orchestra. And all of these things are coming at you if you're in the audience. The main star is the big screen, where we fly you into these incredible places today. They are battlefields from World War II, so they have tragic stories attached to them. However, if you see them in today's world, like Tuscany, Italy, and Okinawa, Japan, and Munich, Germany. It's stunning places that you would want to visit as a tourist. But we try to show you it today, and then pull you back, and then allow you to picture it and what the Nisei soldier had to deal with during World War II, and incredible heroics that they went through. And this all started from a keynote speech I was asked to make, and I, for, for Go For Broke, uh, which is an organization that preserves the legacy of the Nisei soldier. And I had learned so much from them. Just a little bit of my background, I obviously am Japanese American, but my family was not in the camps. They were not in World War II. My family's from Japan. So I got here when I was a year old. So I didn't learn about any of this chapter in high school, in college, even in my early years as a journalist. I grew up in Texas. I got to California, I'm already 30 years old. I'd never heard of any of this before. So I started researching, studying. For the last 25 years or so, I've really immersed myself into trying to find out more about this incredible chapter in our history. But back to the show, 
I was asked to do a keynote speech for a community that I knew knew all the details about it. So what could I tell them? And then I realized, well, they have told me all these stories, but they've never seen these places. So I thought that's perfect for me. I could use my visual medium to bring people into these places and actually see the cliff that they climbed in the Gothic line in the middle of the night, which is such a legendary moment in their history. Everybody talks about it, but nobody's seen the cliff. (laughs) Everybody talks about the dense forest in France when they rescued the Lost Battalion, how dark it was, how scary it was, but they've never seen it. So I thought these are places that I could bring people into and actually show them it physically, show them how beautiful it is, but also give them details about the story itself and allow them to really live it through the memory and the interviews of the Nisei soldier. I love that you went to these locations and we can see what they are like now. Last year, we had a story of a World War II veteran who had died in Bruyere. And one of the residents of the town found a class ring. Do you know this story? I know the story. Oh, okay. And, and so I had the opportunity to, to talk to Kevin Kuroda, and he, he had the ring with him. But even though that story is very exciting, you have to kind of imagine what this place looked like, right? right? You, have, you have to kind of come up with your own imagination. But you were able to actually go to the places yes. and, and film there and, and capture what it looked like today. It's kind of a nutty coincidence. I was actually shooting in Munich revolving around the Dachau story, which they are involved with as well, the liberation of Dachau, when Kevin actually started texting me saying he's in Briere's right now getting the class ring and if I could come up there. And I would have loved to come up there if I had a little notice because I was already shooting in a lot of other places throughout Europe. That came too late to where we couldn't change our schedule. But that story is wonderful, and there are a number of stories like that where there are these historians locally. In each one of these places, and that's a a beautiful part of of each one of these chapters, people feel so indebted to the Nisei soldier because they liberated them from the tyranny of the Nazis. And they all have these incredibly tragic stories under Nazi occupation. So you can only imagine when the Nisei came through there, it didn't matter the color of their skin what their faces look like, they liberated them. They either killed or captured or chased away the Nazis, and they gave them their freedom. And you see that in Italy. You see that with the Jews in Germany. You see that in France as well. You even see that in some degree in Okinawa, Japan. And it's these people who feel indebted to the Nisei that continue to try to preserve their legacy, and then they'll search the battlefield for artifacts. And that's what happened there. A historian found this class ring, and amazingly, the the class ring, once it was cleaned up, was in perfect shape. But it's attached to a really tragic story because it went to a Medal of Honor recipient who clearly lost it when he died on the battlefield. And it fell off his hand, and it laid there for almost 80 years. And when you see the ring, and in in my show you'll see some other artifacts as well, it really takes you back, and and it kind of reminds you that these were 18, 19, 20-year-old kids. This is a high school ring that this guy was wearing, and he did his heroics, and he lost his life because of it. But now we can remember what he did and what he stood for by simply finding a class ring. I feel like living here, we're very familiar with the 442nd. And I think when people go to your show, they'll be able to see a different perspective of Mm -hmm. the story and a different Mm -hmm. side of the story that maybe we haven't seen before. And I wonder, what's your sense of the knowledge of the 442nd outside of Hawaii? Almost nobody knows about it. West coast of California, of course. Mm -hmm. The west coast of the United States, of course, because a lot of those Japanese-American communities were incarcerated, and and some of the guys came out of the camps Mm -hmm. and were enlisted in the army or were drafted into the army, and they fought you know, gallantly and bravely, along with the folks from Hawaii. They combined the two groups. You know, the beauty of the story, it really began here in Hawaii with the 100th. Mm -hmm. And the 100th was an already unified unit that went into battle first. And they were so fierce and they were so good, unprecedentedly good, that they really created the character of the Nisei soldier. So when the volunteers came out of the camps, it was the next go-around. They, they incurred such losses, the 100th did, they needed reinforcements. So that's when the 442nd was created. And then 10,000 folks from Hawaii, 1,500 folks from the camps in the United States volunteered, and that's when they created the 442nd. They went to the training camp, 
They sent them over to the war to join the 100th. They got their, you know, excuse the, the French, but they got their butts kicked early on. But it was the 100th that then taught them how to be great soldiers. And so this combined unit, 100th, 442nd, then went through the rest of the war as one of the most, you know, amazing fighting units in American military history. But it is a story that not a lot of America knows. And that's what brought me to the story as well, being a journalist. I grew up in Texas. I grew up on military bases. My father was a lifer in the Army. I always found military stories intriguing and inspiring. And it hurt me that, number one, I didn't know about the story, so I had a little bit of shame. But then when you analyze that shame, it's not your fault that you are ignorant. It's the system's fault. It's the fact that there aren't chapters about these folks in our history books that there should be. And so it launched me into this kind of immersion into finding out as much as I can about the story and then finding ways to tell the story to get people to pay attention to it. And granted, as you said, people here in Hawaii know the story. People largely on the West Coast have heard the story at least a little bit. You get beyond that, nobody's ever heard of these guys. And part of that, and it leads us into today's world, when we emulate heroes in America, when, we, when Hollywood emulates heroes and leading men, never do you see Asian faces. And this is classic because we're coming right off the Oscars now. Right. We're finally seeing that it's true Asian people and Asian Americans can carry the lead mm-hmm. and can drive people to the box office and can be a hero. But for 75 years, it was assumed that that could not take place. Therefore, Hollywood never did this story. Our history books have ignored this story. And there are incredible details within the story that tie into today's world when it comes to prejudice, when it comes to courage, what these guys faced at such a young age, the fact that their families, some of them, were incarcerated while they did it by the fighting for the very country that incarcerated their innocent family. So there are so many speaking points and things to study about this legacy and this generation of Japanese Americans within the United States and Hawaii that we could learn from. And that's why we need to tell the story, yet we're not telling yeah. the story. What, what's been the reaction that you've seen from people that have come to the performance? Well, number one, and my goal was to make this highly emotional, and that's why I added a choir and music, because I feel like you need to feel the story more than, you know, learn the story and remember the story. You need to feel it, because what they dealt with was pure emotion. It was anger. It was fear. It was elation when they survived the war, the, the ones that were lucky enough. And also it was difficulty beyond that, dealing with the prejudice after the war because they faced so much prejudice thanks to the fact that we were fighting Japan and Americans back then, the vast majority, could not distinguish between an American of of, of Japanese descent or a Japanese imperial soldier. So there are these complex issues. So I I try to make it as emotional as possible. I I introduce in each chapter, I'll take you to a different battlefield, but what I'll do is I'll introduce you to a soldier who might have a unique story attached to that battlefield. So you get to know that person. So it personalizes the story more. So you get to see him as a human. So whatever the outcome might be, you feel that person and you feel either the pain, the elation, the difficulty, the the, the victory, whatever it might be, you feel it. And so the audience largely is really emotional. There's a lot of crying. Our first show, in fact, the choir... You know, this was a concept. So the choir was not quite sure what they were getting into. And when we did the show for a live audience for the first time, it was a sold-out audience at the Aratani Theater in Little Tokyo in downtown Los Angeles. They started screwing up a little bit. <laughs> and, and they apologized afterwards, and they said the reason we started messing up was because we were crying. Because, you know, you do the re- hours of rehearsal, And you see the emotion, but you really don't feel it until you have a room full of people and you see the whole audience crying. And then the audience is crying, 
the choir's looking at them crying. They start crying. They start missing their cues, missing their notes. But it was beautiful at the same time. You know, it's a very organic thing. And as I said, this is kind of an immersive experience. So you could sit there and gather whatever you want from it. You might want to look at the singers live. You know, there's some soloist singing. There's cello, violin. Or you might want to just watch with the main screen. You might want to watch me talking. Or you might just want to keep looking around. But either way, it immerses you in the moment. And I, I think it flies through because you have so many different details that kind of grab you. And whatever your, you know, your preference is, you could just sit there and do it and immerse yourself into the story. I know that Saturday's show is sold out, but you did say that there is another show right. coming up, right? Yeah. And so that's part of and, and keep in mind, this is a learning process for us. I'm a news anchor. I sit on the news desk. I do reports, you know, but I've never done a live show before. I've never dealt with a choir or musicians. So we're all kind of learning together. And I thought this was going to be a one and done, just an example of immersive storytelling. But because it was popular, people keep asking if we could do it again. And the folks who saw the first show said, you got to bring this to Hawaii. And we kept getting requests. So we're bringing it here. We weren't sure, sure if it was going to sell a ticket or not. But we got lucky that there was a date available at the, the Hawaii Theater. And then it sold out in a couple of weeks, which we're so thrilled about. And I think it's a testament to the Nisei soldier. And so we, we put in a second date of April 23rd. It's a Sunday evening. You're not going to be able to get tickets for the first show. But there are plenty of tickets now available for the second show. And I hope people come. And we're using all local musicians. It's going to be tricky, <laughs> you know, experimentation, too. But I hope everybody understands that. And then whatever money it does make stays in Hawaii. And we're going to build an educational curriculum to better tell the story of the Nisei soldier. Thank you so much for your time, David. You literally just got off the plane. Appreciate you coming (laughs) straight over here. I really appreciate you having me. That was journalist David Ono, producer of the upcoming production, honoring the 442nd, titled Defining Courage. He was talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. This Saturday's performance at the Hawaii Theater, again, is sold out, but tickets for a second show on Sunday, April 23rd, are on sale now. Check out the conversation page of our website for a link to more information. for us for this hour tomorrow post-pandemic are we there yet what are your thoughts as we mark three years since the COVID-19 shutdown leave your feedback on our talkback line 808-792-8217 or email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org find our archive shows online on our website or by searching the conversation podcast on Spotify and Apple I'm Catherine Cruz join us tomorrow for more of the conversation